This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 24, and we'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles in front of you, you can turn to page 64. Page 64. Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Then, Mo then, said to Moses, then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord had spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Pray for us once more. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you that you speak clearly in it. Yet, Lord, we confess that our minds need illumination. Our minds need your help to understand. And so we ask for your spirit to come and to speak to us through your word that we might behold more of your glory and of your truth that it might transform us and bring you much praise. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the past few weeks, we have been knee-deep in the law of God. We have looked carefully at the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. Then we uh, studied a long list of seemingly random case laws last week found in chapters 21 to 23. And taken together, we said that those chapters are known as the Book of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments, 
and all these laws governing how Israel is to adjudicate civil and criminal cases. These are all the words that Moses was instructed to write down. And so as we just read in chapter 24, verse 4, it says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And in verse 7, he takes what is now called the book of the covenant, as just mentioned, and he reads it in the reading and hearing of all the people. Now this morning, what we're going to focus on is that one word, covenant. Covenant, because it's so vital to understanding this entire section of Exodus. I think without a clear grasp of what a biblical covenant is and what it is not, we're prone to misunderstanding and misapplying the verses we find here. Because if we see this instead, not as a covenant, but as a contract, if we read this as if it's the book of the contract between the Lord and Israel, we're going to come away with a deep misunderstanding of the heart of God and also a deep misunderstanding of the Christian message. And so if we, if we see our relationship with God based on a contract, what I'm afraid is going to happen is we're going to start treating God like a business partner. Like we entered into a contractual arrangement because we saw things as mutually beneficial. Like he has goods and services that will benefit us, and for that, we're willing to compensate. We're willing to offer our devotion to him or our time out of a busy week, whatever it is. We're willing to give some to get some. But I shared before that this book of the covenant bears no resemblance to ancient covenant, ancient contracts. But rather, it adopts a similar pattern as ancient Near Eastern treaties and not the kind of treaty that is agreed upon by two nations on equal footing. Last week we talked about, or a few weeks ago, we talked about how this book of the covenant bears a striking resemblance to what is known as an ancient suzerain vassal treaty. It's a type of treaty in ancient days where a clear superior, the suzerain, usually a conquering king, would make a treaty with a conquered people, the vassals. And so there was no equal footing here. It wasn't a contractual agreement between partners because that suzerain was under no obligation. He acts out of his own kindness. He acts according to his own sovereign will. He acts according to his grace. Now, these treaties start off with, usually, the suzerain recounting all that he has done for the vassals. And you actually see that in the text. Back in chapter 20, verse 2, right before the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Lord reminds Israel, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's recounting his gracious acts towards the people. Next, what you would expect to find in such a treaty is a list of stipulations for how the vassal now ought to respond in obedience to their new king, and that's exactly what you have in the Ten Commandments and in the Book of the Covenant. And then these suzerain vassal treaties typically end with a whole list of blessings if the vassal keeps the treaty and a list of curses if they don't. And then there's usually a ceremony where the whole treaty is ratified by blood. And they use blood to convey the gravity in obeying or in disobeying. But the most important feature of these suzerain vassal treaties, the one that I, I really want to stress that you need to take home, is, is the way in which the suzerain 
establishes a relationship with the vassal before he expects obedience to certain stipulations. And that's exactly how God approaches things. He establishes relationship by his grace, and then he gives the expectations, he gives the law, he expects obedience. Look back with me, if you will, at a chap- chapter 19. And I just want to show you how, how this is God's heart. This is God's way of making covenants with his people. Look back at Exodus 19. We looked at this um, uh, weeks before. Back in verse 4, let me just read that to you again. This is the Lord talking. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And listen to this. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So just notice there what came first. God compares himself to an eagle bearing Israel, carrying them on his back out of Egypt. They didn't use their strength to fight their way out. They didn't use their brains to devise some sort of escape plan. They didn't even walk out on their own. God says, I had to carry you out. And that means that you contributed nothing to your deliverance. You added nothing to your rescue, nothing to your salvation. You had to be carried out. So God says, I already saved you. I carried you out. Now, therefore, obey my voice and keep my covenant. So it's always, I delivered you. I bore you on my wings. I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, obey my laws. Every other religion, every earthly expectation, every human intuition is going to think the exact opposite. I need to obey. I need to prove my genuineness. And if I do that, now, therefore, I'm accepted by God. I'm delivered. I'm brought near to God in a relationship. But do you see that that's not the message of Scripture? That's not the Christian message. That's not the New Testament's message. And I'm going to show you, it's not the Old Testament's message. As we plainly see here in Exodus, the message is not, I obeyed and I kept covenant, therefore I'm saved and brought near to God. No, the message is, I was saved, I was brought near to God all by his loving kindness by his grace. Therefore, I obey. I keep his covenant. Obedience flows out of salvation, not the other way around. That's what we need to get straight here. That's the heart of the, the Christian message, and that's really the heart of this covenant that we're going to look at this morning, this covenant that the Lord is establishing with Israel. Now, as we go into today's text, as we see this, this treaty, this covenant confirmed, we're going to see blessings, we're going to see curses, we're going to see promises and threats. Those are things you would expect in a suzerain vassal treaty. And we're going to see this whole thing ratified by blood. But the big question is this. How does this covenant with Israel inform the new covenant that God has made with his church? A new covenant that was established through a greater act of deliverance and sealed by a more precious blood. 
What can new covenant believers learn from a text that deals so technically with a covenant that we believe is no longer in effect? So what's the point of studying this? What are we going to gain out of this? And so as we walk through this passage, I I have three points to go through. If you want to look in your bulletin, there is an outline. And I just want us to look deeper as to what can we learn about covenants, the covenant that God established with Israel, and how does that reflect the covenant that he establishes today with Israel? His church. So, three points here. We're going to look at the covenant promise of presence. Second, the covenant confirmed by blood. And third, the covenant hope, the feast with God. So, let's begin in chapter 23. Uh, That's the beginning of of our larger passage. We didn't have time to read the whole thing, but we're starting in chapter 23, uh, verse 20. Uh, so we just look, uh, last week we concluded the book of the covenant, and now here in verse 20, we're going to meet an angel of the Lord who is going to go before, and he's going to lead his people and guard them until they finally settle down into the promised land. Now we need to talk more about the identity and the function of this angel, but the point is that the very mention of this angel communicates what I'm calling the covenant promise of presence of God's presence with his people. I'll I'll explain further, but let's just start in verse 20, and let me read to you uh, 20 to 22. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, we've actually been introduced to this angel uh, earlier in the book of Exodus. Uh, Back in uh, chapter 3, verse 2, he first appeared in a flame of fire coming out of the burning bush that Moses saw. And then he's later there in chapter 14, verses 19 to 20, when Israel is hedged in with the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh and his approaching army on the other. And it says that the angel of the Lord up to that point had been going before the host of Israel, leading them to the Red Sea. And now the angel moves behind them. And as he moves, the pillar of cloud that had also been in front moves along and shields Israel from the approaching Egyptians, giving them enough time to cross the Red Sea. So there, in chapter 14, we, we do see an interesting connection, a close association between the angel of the Lord and what's known as the glory cloud, that cloud that just continued to lead Israel throughout their wilderness years. Um, and later on, if you read in the book of Numbers, we also are introduced to the Ark of the Covenant. Well, I mean, it actually does show up later in Exodus, but particularly we see how they use the Ark of the Covenant in Numbers, playing a very similar role as the glory cloud and the angel, because the Ark goes before the people. It leads them, particularly leading them into battle. So we have these three objects. We have the angel, the glory cloud, the Ark, all working in unison to do the same thing, to represent the presence of the Lord among his people as he leads them into their salvation rest, as he leads them into the promised land. 
Now, it's widely recognized that the Ark of the Covenant represented the earthly presence of the Lord. The, the golden cover that was on top of the ark, uh, it was known as the mercy seat of God. It was the earthly throne of God, and the glory cloud would move and stop wherever the ark would move and stop. And so because of the close association with the ark and the very presence of God, that's why many would identify this angel that we're reading about in chapter 23, verse 20, as, as well a manifestation of the Lord himself. I mean, if you just look back to what I just read, the way he, this angel is addressed would give you that impression that this is not just any angel. Look at verse 21. Israel has to obey the voice of the angel and to not rebel against him because what? Well, he can pardon sins or not pardon sins. And this says God's name is in him. And then look in verse 22. Did you notice how God says, if you carefully obey his, the angel's voice, and do all that I say, you see that connection? You obey his voice and do all that I say. And that tells me that there's really not much of a distinction between the Lord and the angel of the Lord. So what we have in our text is the Lord's covenant promise to be near and to be present with his people. And, and not just with his people. It's, it's not like he's telling Israel, you know, I'm totally going to be by your side. Where you go, I'll go. Where you move, I'll move. No, he is promising so much more than that. The Lord is saying, I will be with you to lead you. Where I go, you go. Where I move, you move. And I will make sure that you get to your final destination. I will fulfill my purposes for you. Psalm 138, verse 8. I will bring to completion the good work I began in you, Philippians 1, 6. You will not perish and no one will snatch you out of my hands, John 10, 28. That's the strength of the promise being given here. Now in the remainder of chapter 23, from verse 23 all the way to verse 33, the Lord is going to spell out in further detail what the promise of presence is going to look like when they reach the land. He promises to bless their crops, to bless their health, to bless their wombs, to give them long life in the land. And I know you read that and it sounds like health, wealth, and prosperity promises. And I know I feel this urge to quickly explain them away because it's not like the, um, you know, it's not like obedient Israelites never experienced a bad harvest or disease or miscarriages. And if an Israelite, uh, you know, did experience those things, it's not necessarily because they were disobedient. You can't make those one-to-one -one correlations. So I want to explain that away, but at the same time, there is this general truth that needs to be affirmed here in that there is a blessing to be experienced when you obey the Lord when you're doing his will. No, of course, we shouldn't limit it to material blessings and we shouldn't absolutize these particular promises found here, but we should affirm how blessed it is to obey, how blessed it is to keep the word of the Lord. Now, if we keep reading in verse 27 and on, God promises, look here, he promises to send his terror and his hornets. 
Uh, translators aren't sure if that's exactly the right English word, but they're just going with hornets. And I, I, I try to look into, like, what is, that, what is that referring to? And most people have no idea exactly why it says hornets. Um, but he's going to send his terror and his hornets to drive out the existing nations from the promised land. And, and let's be clear, uh, the expulsion of these nations is not motivated by racial superiority, but by religious fidelity to worship God and God alone. Verse, uh, verses 24 and 33 make it clear that what God's concern is, why he wants these other nations gone, is because he's concerned that the idolatry of those nations are going to be a snare a religious snare for his people. So he plans on removing them, and he says he's going to do it incrementally over time, according to verses 29 to 30. But of course, the goal is to drive these false gods, to drive false worship out of the promised land. So God's going to do it. God says, I'm going to do that. But listen to what he tells Israel in in verse 31. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, And notice this, and you shall drive them out before you. I thought, God, you're going to send your terror. I thought you're going to send your hornets. I thought you're going to do it. But he says, yeah, I'm going to do that, and you're going to do something too. So there's still a role for the people to play. Their obedience still matters. And that's why if you look back at verses 21 to 22, remember, Israel is called to obey the voice of the angel and to do all that the Lord says obedience is still an expectation. But remember what we just said in the beginning. Remember its place within the covenant. Obedience flows out of redemption. It flows out of relationship. God redeems Israel. He bears them out of Egypt. He brings them to himself in relationship. Now, therefore, he says, Obey my voice. So you see, this angel of the Lord, don't picture him. It's not like he's, he's waiting there, kind of with his hands on his hip, you know, waiting to see how you're going to perform, waiting to see how well you obey before he's ready to commit himself to you. Now, this angel, as we see throughout the book of Exodus, is always moving first. He drew near at the burning bush. He drew near at the Red Sea. He draws near here now at Sinai, and he will stay near until God's people reach their promised rest. There are some who see a very close connection here between the angel of the Lord and Christ Jesus himself. They would say that, you know, this angel of the Lord, it's a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God himself. And they would point to a New Testament book, the book of Jude. We actually looked at that a few months ago. In Jude chapter 1, verse 5, it's there Jude actually names Jesus. So the apostle Jude says it was Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. So there was this interpretive tradition even during the time of the New Testament, where the Son of God was understood to be present in the wilderness, leading Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And so that means the presence of the angel in this text 
prefigures the eventual coming and presence of Christ to be among his people. And that makes total sense because Jesus and the incarnation is the most concrete manifestation of the presence of God among the people of God. And like the angel, Jesus doesn't you know, stand back with hands on his hips, just kind of waiting to see how you're going to perform, how, how, how you're going to obey. No, Jesus makes the first move. He draws near to you. He redeems you by his blood. He establishes a relationship with you. Now, therefore, he calls you to obey his voice. That's how Jesus makes covenants with his people. Well, that's what we can see here uh, for new covenant believers. Out of this text, regarding an old covenant, this is what we can be learning. Obedience matters, but it's an obedience that flows out of salvation by grace alone. Now, let's keep going on in our text to our next point, and we're going to see a covenant confirmed by blood. This is our second point. Now, if we keep on reading into now chapter 24, this suzerain vassal treaty between the Lord and Israel is ratified uh, in a public ceremony. It says in verse 3 that Moses uh, went back down and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And it says all the people agreed with what they heard. And they said, verse 3, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses sets up an altar. He makes some sacrifices, takes a basin of blood, and he is ready to seal the deal and to ratify this treaty to confirm this covenant. So keep reading with me in verse 6. I'll read verse 6 to 8. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. He read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and this is the other half of the blood, and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, the throwing of blood, some, some translations are going to say the sprinkling of blood. If you notice, is done half on the altar that Moses just made, and the other half is thrown onto the people. It's, it's sprinkled onto them. And that's, if you just think about it, must have been a pretty gruesome sight. I'm just imagine with me, like, you know, thousands of people standing together, with splattered blood all over them. It's you know, like a scene from a horror movie. But that's really what ancient sacrifices were like. I think we have to sanitize the view of what it looked like and what it entailed to, to make sacrifices. We, re we read about them all the time in the Bible, but we rarely stop to think about how gory the scene must have been. And it makes you wonder, why? Like, why does so much blood need to be involved? Is there a reason why it had to be so bloody? Well, it's because the blood signified death. And not just the death of the animal from which it came, but the death of the one who is going to break, who might break this treaty, this covenant being made. The bloody slain animal can be pointed to as an example of what will happen to anyone who breaks the treaty that is about to be ratified. The shedding of blood is the penalty for covenant breaking. But what we see in the scriptures, though, is that when God makes 
a covenant with people. When he ratifies a treaty, he uses blood, but he handles this portion of the ratification ceremony in a very different manner than how it was conducted in the ancient Near East. Because when the Lord makes a covenant, what we see in Scripture is that he is willing to take on the penalties of covenant breaking. He's willing to take it all upon himself. The clearest demonstration of God's approach to covenants is seen really in the original covenant that he made with Father Abraham, the patriarch of all Israel. If you think back to Genesis chapter 15, the Lord initiates a covenant with Abraham. He promises him uh, numerous offspring. You will be the father of many nations. Now, when they get to ratifying the covenant, the Lord tells Abraham to cut a number of sacrificial animals in half and to lay them one across from the other, forming a path where you just have a bunch of cut animals on the side. And typically what you would then expect is for the two parties to walk through the middle of this cut up bloody mess of carcasses. And essentially, as you do that, you and the person you're entering into covenant with are invoking a self-curse as in, let the same bloody mess occur to me if I break covenant with you. And so you walk through the carcasses and you seal the deal. That's what you would expect to find in covenants like this. But what happens in Genesis 15? It goes on to say that as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell over Abraham and he passed out. And in Genesis 15 verse 17 it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So the Lord, represented by that smoking fire pot and flaming torch, passed between the bloody pieces without Abraham. He slept through the whole thing. By passing through those pieces alone, God was communicating his willingness to bear the entire penalty for covenant breaking. If Abraham or if the offspring of Abraham break covenant, God is saying he is willing to bear the curse. My whole point is is that this covenant that we're looking at in Exodus being confirmed here at Sinai falls under that same pattern. It falls under the larger covenant that he is making with Abraham. And so the same heart of God is there in Genesis 15 to here in Exodus 24. And so the sprinkling of blood on the people is a way of invoking that same self-curse. But the sprinkling happening there in our text, I hope you see, is ultimately prefiguring the sprinkling of a more precious blood of a greater sacrifice to come. Because we read later on in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer speaks of the confidence that we have to now approach God by the blood of Jesus. A blood that was shed, and as as the writer says, was sprinkled on the hearts of God's people, cleansing us from within, making a way to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word. 
his sprinkled blood speaks a word of mercy as Jesus took the penalty for our covenant breaking upon himself and by his blood he secured forgiveness and acceptance. And out of that acceptance, this covenant relationship that we have with God, he now then calls us to live a life of faith and obedience. You know, I know here in this congregation, there are some of you who likely feel very far from God. You feel like you're a disobedience or your disregard of his law has just accumulated over the years and has just up to this point grown out of hand. And you feel like at, at this point there's just little hope and, and little reason to make a change in your life. Because living God's way or doing his will, obeying his word, it just feels so difficult, feels so tiring, so burdensome. But I hope you're starting to see that perhaps you've been approaching this in the wrong way or more in the wrong direction, approaching law and obedience from the wrong direction. You've been thinking, I obey God's law. I keep his word. Now, therefore, I'm accepted. I'm drawn near. I can feel close to God. The scripture says, I am accepted by God. I am drawn near. I am close to God all by his grace alone. Now, therefore, I want to obey. I want to keep his word. I want to do his will. This whole good news here should be so liberating for you. It should reframe the way you are reading and interpreting and living out the law of God. There is still law in our lives as new covenant believers, but it flows out of our salvation. It flows out of God's gracious redemption and covenant relationship he has established. Well, the last point is to, uh, for us to draw out is found for us in chapter 24 uh, in verses 9 to 18. We're going to stop at 18. Uh, we'll pick up um, the rest next week. We've considered the covenant promise of presence and the covenant confirmed by blood. Lastly, let's look at the covenant hope to feast with God. This has to do with the kind of relationship we're going to have with God if any of us enters into a covenant with him. This is what covenantal life looks like in relation to God. In verses 9 to 11, we are told that Moses, Aaron, and his two, Aaron's two sons and 70 elders are called up to the mountain. And it says here that they saw God. And that's no small thing, since normally, as we read elsewhere in the pages of Scripture, you would expect them, if they see God, they die. I mean, the Lord even says later on in chapter 33, verse 20, when Moses asked to see his glory, the Lord says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You're going to die. Which, you know, is probably why verse 11 here takes note of the fact that God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. It's surprising. They didn't die. They beheld God and ate and drank. So how are we, how are they able to see God here in chapter 24, where later in chapter 33, it says you can't see God. Well, notice that their gaze 
didn't rise very high. Like they, the furthest they got was his feet. And that's as high as they went, as high as they could go, as much as they could handle. They beheld his feet and what was under his feet. It says under his feet was a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And that was really probably just their best attempt to put in the words something that was so sublime, so inexplicable. You know, sapphire is typically of a blue uh, color, a blue hue. So perhaps this is a way of describing the heavens where it is understood uh, for God, from where God resides. So that's just their best attempt to explain what they saw. But the whole point, the whole point um, is that the great benefit of being in relationship with God is that acceptance and the, and that affords, of course, that access, and it's that access to God that allows us to see God. And not only, as it says here, to see him, but to feast with him. Because it says they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank, and they shared table fellowship with the almighty God of the universe. You know, it, it's one thing for a ragged, dirty orphan on the streets to get a chance to see the great king of the land, you know, to just catch a quick glimpse of him. But it's an entirely different thing for that same orphan to find himself seated at the king's table, dressed in royal robes, feasting with a new family as a newly adopted son. It's a completely different experience. And that's really the kind of benefit that comes with being in a covenant relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're seated at his table. We're called a son. We're called a daughter. We get to see him and feast with him. But it's worth noting that here, even in our, in our text, even with this great privilege that these men were given, they were afforded the opportunity to see God but as we've already noted, it was really only a partial vision. They only saw his feet. That's probably why Moses is still asking later on uh, in chapter 33 for a glimpse of God's glory. But there in chapter 33, he's only shown God's backside. And so apparently, no one gets a solid frontal view of God face to face. No one gets to see him straight up. That is, until the day a star shone overhead over the little town of Bethlehem. And from that day on, the face of God could be seen by any man. For the one who existed at the Father's side has come. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side this is talking about the word. It's talking about Jesus. He has made God known. That means in the face of Jesus is the face of God. The apostles were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. They ate and drank on a daily basis with God incarnate. And at their last meal together, Jesus held up a cup of wine and he called it my blood of the covenant. Do you recognize 
that language, he was making a reference to our text, to chapter 24, verse 8. The blood of the covenant that was thrown onto the altar, thrown onto the people. What the apostles experienced on that day, man, it sounds amazing. We wish we could have been there at that supper to behold God incarnate, to eat and drink with him. But friends, don't be too envious because that was just a foretaste. That was just an appetizer. Jesus even made note on that day that the real feast is yet to come. Because after breaking the bread and serving the wine, Jesus went on to say in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There he was referring to what's known as the marriage supper of the Lamb, that is spoken of in Revelation chapter 19. It's where Christ and his bride, the redeemed people of the covenant, will be wed. It's when covenant hope will be complete, when we will finally feast and we will fully fellowship with the Lord our God. So friends, I want you to know that this good news, this good news is that everyone is invited to that marriage supper. Everyone is invited to that future end times feast for those wanting to see God, for those wanting to be closer to him, the invitation stands. The blood of the covenant has been shed. The way has been made. And so the question for you is, will you receive? Will you receive Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, Will you trust and obey? Father, I pray that you will give everyone here the eyes to see, the eyes to be able to see you clearly as you are revealed to us through scriptures in the face of Christ. And I do pray, Lord, that all of us would receive your invitation to enter into a new covenant with you where we repent of our sins, turn away from our sins, and trust that you, by your shed blood, have forgiven them, and that you, by your blood, have brought us near into relationship. I pray, I pray that this relationship will be, will be found in the lives of everyone here. We pray this in your son's name, amen.